1: Welcome back to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks again for joining us. I'm your host Christian Peterson. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sean Anthony about his wonderful new book, Crucifixion and Death as Spectacle, Umayyad Crucifixion in its Late Antique Context, which was published by the American Oriental Society in 2014. Crucifixion is one of the most widely envisioned symbols in history, so much so that for a contemporary reader, the notion almost immediately plants an image of Jesus on the cross. Sean Anthony argues that the, an assumption of uniformity in the role of crucifixion hinders our understanding of it, which is especially true when looking at crucifixion as a cross-cultural category during the Late Antique Period. In this new book, crucifixion is examined in the early Muslim context but placed within broader social and political tactics of Late Antiquity. Extreme death techniques, especially in the disciplining of religious deviance, were most often public spectacles of ritualized violence used to legitimize political leaders. Umayyad leadership used crucifixion as an ideological tool to reinforce their own political legitimacy. Anthony demonstrates how this all plays out in the cases of Abdullah ibn Zubayr and Zayd ibn Ali. The study of crucifixion also enables us to examine the rich ways that Muslims remembered and accounted for their own personal histories. In our conversation, we discussed the relationship between early Islam and late antique societies, crucifixion in the Zoroastrian setting, the treatment of the dead Muslim body, crucifixion in the Quran and Hadith, the public-private spheres of the body, deciphering historical sources, religious deviance, and the ironic fate of the conquered Umayyads. It was a real pleasure to speak with Sean, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Welcome again to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I'm, I'm very excited that I'm speaking with the, the wonderful, brilliant Sean Anthony about his wonderful new book, Crucifixion and Death as Spectacle, Umayyad Crucifixion in its Late Antique Context. Thanks for making some time to talk to me. How are you? I'm doing good. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, now, this, this is a really interesting book. Uh, it's, it's something people, I, I think, generally don't think of, uh, this idea of crucifixion in the Islamic context. But uh, once you start to look at the material, it's kind of all over the place. So I, I really enjoyed reading it, and I think you're you're doing some really interesting stuff. Um, before we get into the, the content, um, I was hoping you could uh, help us understand kind of your interest in Islamic studies, kind of where where you got started – what brought you to the study of Islam? Perhaps people that have been influential in either uh, kind of the, the way you approach texts or things like this?
0: Uh, I, I guess the way that I got interested in it is kind of goes back to college experience. You know, it, it's one of those things where uh, as an undergrad, I decided to uh, do something different and do a study abroad and when i was i think i was i was 19 years old and i went to live in cairo for 6 months and take some classes on the middle east there i had never left the country before in my life and it was for me it was it just exploded in my brain right it was something that i had wasn't really ready for and it just it just totally uh pulled me in it captured my imagination uh While I was there in Cairo, I ended up traveling to Israel-Palestine for two weeks in the middle of my semester there. And then when I was finishing uh, with my semester, uh, I decided to go with some friends. We traveled from Cairo up through Jordan, up through Syria, and then all the way uh, through Istanbul. And I said, for a person that I'm originally from Ohio, from just basically the backwoods and farm country in Ohio... it was just beyond anything that I could possibly imagine up to that point. And after experiencing all that and, uh, meeting the people and being so, uh, kind of enamored with the region and fascinated by everything that I saw there, I, I was hooked. So that's what really got me started. Um, the problem is that most of my study was in religious studies and theology. And so once I decided that I wanted to study this stuff, uh, I didn't really have the language skills or really even a deep enough background to go directly into a Ph.D. program. So I decided to get a, an M.A. and uh, I decided to do my master's in Cairo because it kind of caught me, uh, caught my imagination so uh, so profoundly. And I decided to go to the American University in Cairo. where I got my M.A. in Middle East Studies, did all my Arabic, did a lot more traveling. Uh, it's so cheap to travel once you're actually inside the region. And
1: uh, yeah, and, and so I've just been doing this stuff ever since. And then, so you did your uh, your PhD at the University of Chicago, and this this book. You talk a little bit about how this book emerged, kind of from your your graduate experience, or kind of at least set the seed for it. Perhaps can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know these how these thoughts about this topic began to to emerge.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of, it's a bit of uh, a coincidence. Um, my advisor with that, al Qadi, had this great class uh, class on the sources, which is called On the Classical Sources. What it really was about is, uh, it was about exploring all the different biographical dictionaries of uh, their Arab Islamic tradition. Uh, just to explain real fast what that means is one of the, Main genres of historical writing for uh, Muslim historians, particularly those that are writing Arabic, are to write gigantic biographical compendia. That is, you, instead of organizing history according to the year in which events happen, you or you order it according to either generations or according to uh, genealogies or, uh, or according to alphabetical order of a name or whatever. And uh, she ended up assigning me a uh, rather curious book by a North African scholar by the name of Abu Arab uh, Tamimi. And it was called uh, Kitab al mahan or the Book of Tribulations. And this biographical dictionary was essentially organized according to all the bad things that happened to pious people in the past. <laughs> and so it was kind of a, a list of all the people that died at this battle, a list of all the people that were persecuted by this or that gov- uh, governor, those guys that died in prison. And then, of course, those guys who were crucified, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it really led me to start to ask just some basic questions because I was surprised about a lot of the content that I found in there. Uh, one of the first ones that I asked and kind of like addressed in, in an article, actually, was, um, well, what's it mean to go to a prison? What do their prisons look like? What right? uh, what is it what where do prisons take place? One thing I notice is that people are often imprisoned within people's homes or within like a, a dried out well or like a, a cave or something like. Mean, what's up with that? And and uh, that kind of data wasn't really collected or, or looked at. And then, I guess the real seeds of the project that we're talking about today began to germinate when I started collecting these. Uh, strange passages where people were, were crucified. And I, I just said, what does that mean that they were crucified? Um, what does it mean in, in this context to be uh, crucified? Because usually, like most people, when I think about uh, crucifixion, I strongly associate with the iconography of Christian art, you know, the basic Christ on the cross. And uh, I begin wondering, if, does it mean that type of crucifixion? If it doesn't mean that type of crucifixion, uh, what type of crucifixion is it and and all that other type of stuff and so those that's kind of the the or- originization of this project It's sort of looking at that books gallery gallery of tribulations that were suffered by all these righteous and, and hapless uh hapless few that ended up to make in this uh in this interesting historical collection
1: yeah I think that's one of the things that that makes this book really interesting is uh this kind of questioning of our contemporary normative categories and and exactly uh, what are these things and assuming that perhaps we're talking about the same thing where you really demonstrate in the book that we're, that we're not. Um, uh, There's one other kind of, uh, kind of larger question I want to ask you um, because uh, you bring a uh, kind of a unique linguistic skill set to your work. um, Not one that's, uh, you know, unheard of, but, um, one of the other things that I think is uh, special about this book is you you really place this within this larger uh, late antique context, and I, I'm wondering if you can kind of just uh, tell us your thoughts about what do what do we gain when we look at Islam from this kind of broader uh, social historical context? What 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 perhaps are people missing if they don't take these into account? And you know you have the language skills to do this. Not everyone does, but Uh, You know, I hope others will continue to do these kind of studies. Well,
0: I think historically there's been, um, you know, well, there's been a tendency in Islamic history, particularly the study of early Islam, is to try to see Islam as somehow sui generis, somehow originating from the desert and being born, fully formed from the desert and then appearing on the stage of the Near East and taking over without trying to look at the cultural continuities between what came before and what came after. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of people of late have found uh, this whole effort to engage Islam with late antiquity, that is kind of the, by which most people mean the post-imperial context of what was the Roman Empire as it began to unravel, uh, particularly in the 6th and 7th centuries, the rise of Islam, in, in our case, uh, is that we can see that Islam is not entirely a it's on us, not entirely independent, but rather it engages with, it draws from, it transforms, it reimagines uh, imperial traditions, religious traditions, cultural traditions uh, that it encountered in the course of its conquest. And that were actually already uh, a familiar and part of Arabian society before Islam even came. Uh, around like, the simple way that I always uh, tell my students is there you find this dynamic in which um, not only did the Islamic conquest transform the Near East and, and North Africa, uh, but also uh, Islam itself was transformed by its own conquests by the peoples and the cultures that it encountered. Uh, so I, I think that's the real strength of uh, of the late antique perspective uh, and. Also, late antiquity is, I think, uh, flexible enough that we can integrate what happens in the Islamic period with what was going on uh, in in Europe after the after uh, and during the late Roman period uh, in the Eastern Mediterranean, but also in Northern Mesopotamia and also uh, um, the Iranian sphere, the Iranian plateau, and even well into Central Asia as so it is this great uh, kind of basin where all this stuff. Uh, can intermingle, and uh, and I think Islamic history gives you kind of a unique unique perch from which to view the, uh, those dynamics.
1: Now, um, in the introduction, you uh, you present us with a number of misconceptions that people have about crucifixion during this this period, um, and I'm wondering if you could kind of lay these out. You talk about uh, the idea that crucifixion died out in late antiquity. Um, yeah that, uh, crucifixion in the Muslim context was not the same as crucifixion in, uh, broader Near Eastern practice. And then that, uh, of course, which you kind of alluded to already this, this idea that the modern notion of crucifixion, uh, is, is rather different. Can you kind of tell us, uh, you know, what, what does crucifixion mean in this context? Can, can we think about it as kind of a cross-cultural category, you know, based on these kind of, uh, notions that we have and, misconceptions that were happening even during the you know during the early period yeah sure um, like I said kind of in, but one of the things that we have as baggage
0: uh, when I say we I think most modern persons that have kind of exposed exposed the global culture is when we think about crucifixion our main entree into it is the Christian iconography that's associated with Jesus crucifixion so the two cross beams and of course being nailed on the cross and the assumption is that both in the Roman period, or even in the ancient Near East, or in the Islamic period, late antique period, whatever period you're talking about, that crucifixion looks like that always. And I think one of the things I try to do in my introduction is kind of loosen that up, right? And by saying that, really, what crucifixion was was a broader uh, phenomenon that had a lot more diverse techniques. Uh, you had the crucifixion of both the living and the dead. Uh, The type of structure in which crucified people would be put on varied widely, the shape that is. And in general, the iconography of Christianity, if you take that as the only way in which crucifixion existed, it becomes an obstacle to actually uh, understanding what crucifixion is. Crucifixion at its most basic is the display of a body or a person, this could be living or dead, to expose them to ignominy right and that is crucifixion you put a body onto a piece of wood or some kind of wooden structure and you expose that body whether they're living or dead as some punitive measure it can be used as a mean of execution but also can be used as a means to desecrate a body as well that is to display of course in another perspective and i think this is something that's that you encounter even on the History Channel type stuff um, is that uh, crucifixion was uh, something that was purely uh, when we're looking at the Roman context it is that crucifixion was merely a pre-Christian uh, Roman antique practice and that once Constantine the Great in the 4th century uh, it began this process of the Christianization of the Roman Empire uh, there's this watershed moment where all of a sudden crucifixion is banned because crucifixion can no, no longer be a uh, a means for the state to uh, to execute criminals or to display bodies for for ignominy or whatever. Uh, it's now a symbol of Christian iconography, but that's actually fundamentally not true. Practice of crucifixion does change after Constantine, and uh, the way that it's seen does change. But it is continued all the way up to the Islamic period and even beyond on the Eastern Roman side, that is the uh, the Byzantine side. And even we do have some examples of it happening in Europe as well. I think though in Latin Europe it's a bit uh, it's a bit uh, more difficult to find examples. And so the, the other kind of after that, the question is if you have crucifixion appearing in the Islamic period, um, there's two responses, and one is to say like, well, did is there a reappearance of crucifixion whereas uh, it was abolished by Constantine before the, do, uh, this, the Islamic Empire revive it? And One of the things that my book tries to show is that no, there's no revival, but rather there's a continuity. That crucifixion is being practiced, and at least we have pretty good evidence being practiced by, by the Byzantines or the East Romans, all the way up to the Islamic conquest uh, in the 7th century. And then also what I try to add to that perspective as well is the use of Crucifixion by the Sassanid or the Persian Empire uh, in the East, again, all the way up to the period of the Islamic conquest. And just one, one more point to that. Um, you, one thing that became uh, a rather prevalent canard in the secondary literature about Islamic crucifixion as well was that uh, Islamic crucifixion was not really the crucifixion that we come, came to know of uh, from Roman antiquity. Uh, or from Christian iconography, but rather Islamic crucifixion somehow radically different, uh, and it was much more mild. But that's actually also emphatically not the case. There's actually a, a lot of evidence for uh, a, a large amount of real continuity between crucifixion and all its diversity, as it was practiced in the late Roman period, and also in the Susana period for Persia, all the way up to uh, the, the Islamic conquests.
1: Yeah, and you do this very well in the book. And by, by the time I got to uh, the chapters on the Islamic period, I really uh, – the, the whole kind of general notion you have about cru- crucifixion really is gone in your mind when you're reading the very, very interesting materials. Um, could could you tell us about what crucifixion was like in kind of the the, the Roman late, uh, late antiquity? What did it look like? Uh, who, who was being crucified? Uh, what were – possibly some, you talk about some alternatives that this was a uh, part of the kind of broader notions of, of death techniques. Yeah. Uh,
0: one thing to keep in mind is that when it does come to crucifixion as a way of killing somebody as a, as a kind of a machine of death or a uh, <laughs> uh, way of uh, killing a person, this seems to be more or less a Roman invention. Um, it, but it also, at the same time, the way in which that crucifixion was practiced where it could be done in a wide variety of ways. And also both living and dead individuals were crucified. Sometimes women were crucified, sometimes men, uh, mostly men though. You know, all of it was of course to the same horrific effect. Um, there is a move in, in uh, Roman late antiquity to uh, move away from the type of crucifixion uh, that we see. Sp- kind of associate with the christian iconography uh and that comes with the invention of something called the fork uh the fork is an interesting uh interesting structure basically how it works is you have uh, a post that splits at the top so it's in the shape of a y and uh so it doesn't look like what we associate with a christian crucifix uh but as a somewhat similar effect you Isidore Seville, said, uh, who died in uh, 636, actually described it favorably. That is, the fork was considered to be uh, more humane than that of the traditional cross. Uh, but in, anyway, the way that it worked was that the criminal's neck was put in the bottom V part of the, uh, of the upper branch, or the upper two branches where the Y was, and then uh, the person was hoisted up high with his – neck hanging at the bottom of that V-shape, and effectively he would be hung to death or strangled to death, and then his body would be left to to dangle and to be displayed. And so that's one example that we know of uh, that uh, marked a transformation in the way in which crucifixion was practiced. The problem with this is, is that most of our uh, data for this transformation of crucifixion comes from legal works uh, like the Justinian Code and so on and so forth and the way in which crucifixion is referred to remains essentially the same in the vernacular so whether or not this transformation was more theoretical than actual or whether or not crucifixion in its more ghastly versions were totally disappeared is really difficult to gauge. Um, it is notable though that we, we do have some depictions of the uh, of the forca method of crucifixion uh, in byzantine illuminated manuscripts and also as well in some examples of of art that come from the from late antique period where we see the cruci the the, uh, the forca or the fork being used uh, rather than the cross so that that is significant that, that it, we do see it appearing uh, but for example when the syriac historians are talking about uh, the Romans crucifying, say, Jews and Samaritans revolting in Palestine, or um, pagans uh, in, in Mesopotamia. Uh, it doesn't register in their vernacular. That is, they they call old R- Roman crucifixion and, and Jesus uh, Christ style crucifixion. They use the same sort of language, the same words to describe these crucifixions. Uh, and so, if there is a change in the practices, it doesn't register in the vernacular. I think that uh, clues us into kind of an importance sort of their perspective. That, in essence, it's the same thing. Uh, there's uh, one instance that I always re- re- remember from the uh, Syriac historian John of Ephesus when he's talking about. Um, In essence, a a series of crucifixions that happened in the the city of Amida in the 520s, and uh, a lot of the the wrong sorts of Christians were were being crucified. That is, they're they're anti-Chalcedonian Christians. And uh, John of Ephesus says, Behold the new martyrs made by the Christians. He says, Why then should Christians blame pagan judges who committed deeds such as this, since they too acted like them? Yeah, so he blames them for doing the same things that uh, against Christian martyrs as the pagan judges do. Uh, Which one thing that is ironic is when uh, uh, some Jews and Samaritans are revolting in Palestine themselves get crucified. His attitude is like, well, they got what they deserved. Um, So he's not necessarily uh, totally consistent, right? Uh, But it it is fascinating that whether, whether or not these attempts to sort of lighten the effect of crucifixion uh worked uh is, is debatable right hmm. it's still pretty unpleasant to be hung up by your neck on a <laughs> on a y-shaped cross you know
1: what i'd right <laughs> yeah. um now uh in this idea of kind of continuity we, we find uh much of the same in the Sasanian context but what kind of uh local particularities do we find here too what what kind of differences do we see Well, that's it's an interesting
0: question because the the Sasanids uh, kind of provide, in some cases, for uh, Islamic uh, legal literature models, and I don't really mean to say models in terms of primary models, or kind of tertiary models. Uh, So, they'll first get when you find mentions of Sasanids in thick literature, first you'll see appears to. Of course, the scriptural traditions like Qur'an, hadith, the sayings, and the deeds of the prophet and his companions and things, but then they'll they'll mention as kind of like a bonus, oh, by the way, the Sassanids did this too. Um, And that is, the Sassanids will crucify political rebels, and they'll also crucify heretics as well. Um, It's interesting to try to disentangle what methods the Sassanids are using to crucify, though. Um, there's there's a big uh, kind of difference between the way in which Islamic sources, writing hundreds of years after the Sassanid Empire has fall, fallen, uh, how the Islamic sources describe the Sassanids as practicing crucifixion, and how the contemporary uh, Syriac sources describe uh, the Sassanids as practicing crucifixion. Um, I would say one thing that's it's interesting about Sasannas that I was kind of playing around with is the Sasannas uh, as kind of vanguards of Zoroastrian religion as their empire, um, they have different ways of thinking about burial. And one of the things I, I tried to experiment with thinking is uh, usually, if we have crucifixions in the Syriac accounts, we either have uh, rebels that are crucified or we have uh, Zoroastrian apostates to Christianity. And one of the things that 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 made me think about, particularly with the uh, martyrdom narratives, is whether or not the Sassanids were using uh, crucifixion as a means for excarnation. And I'll explain what excarnation is. Um, Essentially, in Zoroastrian belief, one does not bury the body and does not bury corpses into the ground because the ground is seen as pure. And thus to bury the body would... Sub, uh, would uh, desecrate the earth and for that reason bodies are exposed to scavengers be they kites, vultures less ideally dogs and which the human remains are, are consumed that way and uh, one thing I was exploring is whether or not the standards were so keen on exposing bodies uh, of the dead on crosses, particularly martyrs as a way of forcible excarnation uh, because the Christians were, all, are always seen as trying to, after the, after the martyr is killed upon the cross, and this is another distinctive thing they usually do, when the Sassan is crucified, people, they would shoot them with arrows, it seems, to kill them. So it's a way of restraining them, and then you shoot them with arrows, so they kind of die slowly their arrow wounds, or maybe fast, depending on how good the, of a shot your soldier is at shooting you, um, and then they leave them on the cross for several days, uh, and the Christians are always trying to steal the body so they can bury the body. And the in a lot of these martyrdom accounts, and the uh, the Sassanids are, are very determined not to let them steal the body. I think part of the reasons for this is that they they want the bodies to uh, be scavenged, you know, by vultures and kites and dogs and things like that, uh, in order to prevent Christian burial rights from being practiced upon these these Zoroastrian uh, apostates I'm not hundred percent certain of that thesis to be honest but um, it, it is something that I think is makes crucifixion distinctive within a, uh, a, a Zoroastrian context that I thought should have been uh, brought to bear
1: yeah that uh, that is interesting and so um in the kind of remainder of the book, you focus on the Islamic context, obviously. So maybe to kind of set this up, um, you could kind of place the symbolic meaning of crucifixion within kind of uh, a more general treatment of the Muslim dead body uh, for people who don't know, kind of, you know, because it's very different from the Zoroastrian experience you just told us about.
0: Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that has always been striking to me and something that I did do in my teaching as well is, as uh, when teaching things about like private life and, and things is in this culture, by which I mean, American culture, we, uh, mostly, uh, we tend to be pretty distant from, from death. Uh, I, I remember when relatives of my family, uh, passed away while they were, uh, in the hospital or in whatever context, that essentially the process of taking care of the body and seeing that you know every all due attention was given it for the next stage and uh, uh, the, the next stages and so on and so forth were handled it by professionals, right? And uh, in most of context, this is this is not something that was uh, something which uh, historically and even today, it's not something that was handed over. Uh, the A body that passed away of, of natural causes is given w- one last kind of sacred washing by the relatives of the dead and even during this washing um, and the the body is treated as sacrosanct and its dignity and its uh Its honor is preserved throughout the process of washing the body, preparing it uh, for burial, and and when you view crucifixion in Islamic context, uh, in contrast to this sort of very kind of sacred, intimate, and uh, honor-filled approach to uh, um, kind of giving. You know the last kind of sacred stamp to uh, a person's remains. Uh, it's it's pretty stark because it seems like crucifixion almost seems in, in this Islamic context as the inversion of the sacred uh, practices of burial uh, because it exposes uh, the body to public display. It, it totally uh, undermines uh, the sacrality of the body of the person who's being uh, displayed and uh it as uh, the burial practice when with the a body that you honor it's like the final way of it's like putting a seal upon that person's inclusion within the within the Muslim community and it seems crucifixion seems because it's a an inversion of that a negative image of almost of those burial practices it's a way of ultimate exclusion right it's a way of uh physically and probably marking this person this person's uh, definitive exclusion from the Muslim community by displaying their body, denying them uh, this kind of very sacred and solemn uh, burial, according to the strictures of Islamic ritual law.
1: Now, to, uh, when we get into kind of the Islamic sources, you you start by kind of uh, framing it within kind of the early Islamic period uh, before you get to the Umayyads. And so could, can you tell us about when do we see Uh, Crucifixion in kind of the the scriptural tradition, the Quran and Hadith. uh, In in what instances does it show up, and how do people usually interpret these uh, crucifixions? You know,
0: this is interesting um, because you know the the crucifixion appears already in the Quran. It uh, appears in in multiple contexts. Uh, The most famous, which for my book was was actually for once uh, the least interesting, and it was the best well known, is that the the Quran speaks about the crucifixion of Jesus very directly, uh, but it denies uh, that Jesus was crucified. Well, this is the traditional interpretation it denies that Jesus was crucified, but rather he only appeared to be crucified, and that rather God lifted him up uh, and took him essentially to heaven. And spared him of the crucifixion in in a shadow or an image or or Judas or some – there's many versions of explaining how it actually happened. was crucified in its place. Uh, Otherwise, crucifixion appears in a lot of other contexts. But in a sense, it's very ambivalent because on the one hand, crucifixion is this punishment uh, that is wielded by the perennial tyrant of the Quran, and that is the pharaoh. So Egypt's pharaoh is always threatening um, his most righteous opponent, Moses, and his followers with crucifixion as as punishment, right? He always threatens to amputate their limbs and crucify them and all this other stuff. And there's a way that crucifixion represents tyranny, right? On the other hand, though, the Quran also reserves crucifixion alongside the amputation of a person's limbs from opposite ends and exile as kind of this just punishment for, um, the verse basically says for those who wage war against God and his messenger and spread corruption in the land. So in many ways, so although the Pharaoh wields the punishment with caprice and injustice and crucifixion marks out the Pharaoh's tyranny, um, Crucifixion doesn't also totally fall outside uh, the moral horizons of the Quran. You know, in a way, the Quran sees that uh, crucifixion can be just can be just, right? One can be crucified and crucified justly, yet only the cause has to be just. You have to be a certain type of bad person, uh, guilty of a certain crime, and that crime is usually referred to as hirada in the legal literature, uh, which. Broadly attested, usually people say it's just uh, brigandry and things like that. But one of my favorite uh, definitions comes from the Maliki scholar, Bar, who uh, died in 1074. And he basically says that Heiraba is separating from the community and splintering the authority of the Muslims and imposing legitimate political authority. So really we're talking about uh, rebellion, brigandry, uh, many modern Muslim scholars will apply this to, to terrorists and, and things like that as well. But Herabas is, is really just absolutely invidious, dangerous, and violent uh, threat to the social order that leads to bloodshed, chaos, etc. Um, one of the things that's fascinating as well, though, is that uh, we see crucifixion appearing in uh, our other sources uh, other kind of sources sacred scripture, the hadith, uh, representing Muhammad's uh, sayings and his deeds and also the sayings and deeds of his closest companion. Uh, but it's really rare. And a lot of the traditions that appear in which uh, people are crucified don't tend to be the, the strongest and the, uh, the most revered in the Islamic tradition uh, in terms of their, their veracity. Uh, they tend to be somewhat apocryphal. Uh, there, not all of them, but, but many of them do. Uh, the ones that are the most popular in terms of stories actually appear in Sira literature in which uh, some of Muhammad's followers are crucified in, in the course of their martyrdom. Uh, one of them is uh, a famous murder from uh, from the city of Medina who's captured by the unbelieving, unbelieving uh, Meccans. And because this... Medina and his name is uh, Khubayb El Ansari because he killed one of their uh, fathers or whatever he's taken outside the city and he's he's crucified sometimes a lot sometimes sometimes after his death and there's also another very popular story about a uh, a Byzantine uh, ally among the Arabs named Barua who uh, who basically converts to Islam and then as the story goes Caesar, which is the universal word they used to refer to the, the Roman emperors at the time hears wind of it and, and orders him to be crucified Right. so what this all tells us I think is that crucifixion is a part of the life world from which uh, the Hadith literature the literature about the biography of the prophet, the Quran itself Emerge, right? It's part of the territory. It's part of the landscape, and the way in which they responded to that landscape can can be different, right? It's particularly with the Quran, and the Quran's uh, mention of crucifixion as a punishment for those guilty of this hijrabe crime, which I might call it brigandage. Uh, you know, the ways in which you actually crucify in order to observe this uh uh this punishment in the Quran can be differently conceived as well uh i usually distinguish between two positions that i call um the maximalist position and the minimalist position the maximalist position seems to be earliest and thus it's not surprising that we find it to be the version usually uh practiced in the Umayyad period and uh, i have one of these quotes that i Or from this Medina jurist named Ibn Ibn al-Majisun, who died in 780. And he says that – this is how he describes crucifixion. He says crucifixion means that one is to be crucified alive and then executed while crucified. Uh, Neither the crucified man's kinsman nor any other should be permitted to remove him from his cross until he rots, right? And the dogs feast on his flesh. Now, that's the kind of the maximalist argument. And then later on, you get really strong reactions against this type of crucifixion um, as being just way over the line. And the person that really establishes uh, the objection to this is the famous jurist Shefari, who died in 820. And what he says is that uh, because uh, the prophet said that – that God ordained excellence for his followers in all things. If one must kill, one has to do it in a good manner. That is, one has to do it in a way that is not uh, absolutely cruel. And so in, in his minimalist position, he saw crucifixion as something that could only be practiced on a dead body. That is, if someone uh, is executed, you can display his body, uh, but only for a few days. And then that the body has to be returned to his uh, kinsmen for, uh, for treatment. Uh, sorry, for, or for burial and things like that. Um, and so you, you have this interesting way in which crucifixion is imagined, even in diverse ways within the legal literature, within the early biographical literature about Muhammad within the Quran itself. Uh, it, it's a, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, portrait to disentangle and, and to look at it all, all its complexity. Hmm.
1: Now, uh, one of the kind of main arguments you're making here is that crucifixion during the Umayyad period is a, uh, it's a, it's a political tool. It's a, it's a ritualized form of violence that used for strategic kind of ideological ends. So um, can, can you kind of explain what uh, within this context, what crucifixion communicated to the living, right? Since that's mainly it's, it's ideological purpose.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like I said like you said it kind of uh, the way I said. It before, I think it's this public, it's ritualized form of violence, and there's this amorphous array of symbols that is tr- that it tries to conjure up. I, and in, I think in the first instance, like you said it's a way in which the Umayyad polity uses to legitimize uh, its power uh, by displaying its power. But the sheer fact that the Umayyads are able to do this in a way is showing that. Uh, their power is legitimate. Right. Um, and one of the things that are key about their ability to wield crucifixion against their enemies is it is able to draw upon, uh, chronic language and chronic symbolism. Right. And also it's a, it's a way of, um, humiliating their, their rivals or rebels to such an extent that, um, uh, it creates a very physical manifestation of uh, God not supporting and thus rejecting kind of the rebellion There's uh, that they put down or whatever. The Caliph Hashem has this really short phrase in Arabic that he uses to kind of uh, describe the way in which um, the rebel Zayd ibn Ali was published, uh, published, uh, punished, um, and what he calls it is the irrefutable proof of punishment of Hudjaf fil Akuba. And what, in Hisham's view, is a, the Caliph will use clemency and he will be as patient as possible. But if you cross kind of a certain line of rebellion, in which you try to create uh, civil war, internal uh, dissent amongst the Muslims. Then he will not hesitate to go to the full measure and use the irrefutable proof of punishment that is at his uh, disposal as caliph, right? Uh, and I think that's one of the key things, right? Because when the state is using crucifixion, it's it's trespassing on both public and private sphere, spheres, because it it absolutely subjugates uh, the private body by exposing it to the public sphere, right? And by exposing the privacy of the body to the public sphere, it's, it's totally and absolutely uh, denigrated, all right? And it scandalizes uh, the person that is crucified and also his actions that lead up to uh, him being crucified, right? And it's symbolic and it's ritualized also because it, it represents the power of the authority to destroy the, the privacy of the, of the bodies. And then also enact and materialize uh, the symbols of divine retribution and communal exclusion, uh, mobilizing these chronic motifs of punishment. You know? uh, I hope that answers that question. Yeah. You.
1: Yeah. Now um, you give us, uh, you know, two really kind of important examples here to kind of exemplify how this kind of played out uh during the period. Um can you kind of walk us uh through one of these narratives about um, these important figures that you talk about you talk about Abdullah ibn Zubair and uh Zayd ibn Ali? Could you tell us about one of one of these figures who they were and kind of what led to their death and uh, and the importance of their crucifixion? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um well, I guess both of them are very important because uh well so you have two main well, yeah, many people that rebel against the Umayyads that are very important, but uh, two very prominent ones are, are crucified. And the first one is is named Abdallah ibn Zubayr in 692. And al ibn Zubayr is a grandson of one of the prophet's closest companions, al-Zubayr ibn Awam. And he establishes, uh, during the Second Civil War, uh, a counter-caliphate. And he he almost takes over the entire Islamic polity himself and is almost able to depose um, the dynasty that had control of the Islamic polity up until the Second Civil War, the Imaid Caliphate. Um, and one of the things that he does is he establishes himself in this, the holy city of Mecca, where the Kaaba is located and, of course, where the, where the Hajj has to take place and so on and so forth. And by the time that the Umayyads had regained power and were marching against Mecca in order to retake it and to finally put uh, Abdullah ibn Zubair's uh, ambitions for political power to an end, uh, his body is notably uh, crucified. He's crucified not alive, however, but he's crucified after he's dead. Uh, they find his body on the battlefield after. Uh, Mecca is sieged and so in essence one of the problems with the actual uh, defeat of Abdullah bin Zubair, one of the reasons why it took so long was that he established himself within the sacred precincts of Mecca and according to both pre-Islamic and Islamic uh, uh, ritual law associated with Mecca blood should not be shed within the precincts of Mecca, it's a haram Right. It's a sacred space. Um, and that's also why he was suppo- – why he fled there and why he sought his, his safety there and very cleverly tried to uh, lead his, uh, his bid for the caliphate from Mecca. In order to defeat Ibn Zubair, though, um, the Umayyad governor, Al-Hajjaj, had to brutally besiege Mecca, uh, in the course of which the Kaaba was partially destroyed – Uh, Many people were killed within the sacred precincts itself, including Ibn al-Zubayr. And the Umayyads had had to have a way in which they conceptualized themselves as being the good guys despite all this. And one of the ways in which they did this is to uh, portray Ibn al-Zubayr as himself the desecrator of Mecca by making it a site from which you rebel. Right. Even to choose Mecca as a place from where the bell made him, they called him Mulhead or somebody that desecrated the sacredness of of Mecca itself. Uh, From the accounts that we have are are really quite fascinating. It seemed that Ibn Osberd knew that he was going to be crucified or he had some sort of inkling that they were going to desecrate his body. So before uh, he died, supposedly he drank uh, massive amounts of, I don't know how you do this, but he drank massive amounts of musk so that, uh, when his body was exposed, it would not stink with the stench of death. And, and we have these accounts of people describing when, uh, Ibn body was strung up on this wooden structure or crucified if you will. Uh, whenever, uh, it would uh, shake in the wind or whatever. You would people would smell the musk. So why is musk important, even? It's not that he was just trying to smell nice, even though he his body was dead. But musk is actually uh, one of the sense of paradise, right? Even the soil of paradise is said to be made out of musk in Islamic tradition. And he seems that he was trying to take measures to ensure that his body, though desecrated. Uh, would not totally be regarded as beyond the realm of salvation. You, you have a lot of interesting uh, conversations that go on between people that are sympathetic to his mother, who outlives him and sees this happen to her son. Uh, and one of them is is Abdullah ibn Omar, the uh, son of the second caliph of Islam, and he he goes up to Ibn Zubair's mother and he says, he told her, he says, don't don't worry about. What's being done to your son's body? Um, you know, the, the souls of human beings are, are with God. This, this is not him. You know, uh, and eventually, uh, it seems that uh, Ibn Zubair's body was handed back over to his mother, and he was given uh, a burial. Other accounts say that his his corpse was just uh, thrown out amongst the. Uh, uh, in, in a dump, basically. Uh, other other uh, uh, accounts, just to get back to, like, the smell thing, say that uh, Ibn Zabir was not only just crucified upside down uh, and, and let to rot, but rather they also hung a dead cat or even sometimes a dead female dog so that it would enhance the, the smell, right? So what we have is two kind of competing views of Ibn Zabir uh, – contesting with one another, right? So the Amayas have this uh, investment in making his body disgusting, putrid, uh, to expose uh, the desecration and the uh, decomposition of his body for all to see as a marker of his damnation by the Caliph, its exclusion from the community, and in essence, his rejection by both God and the community. And then we also have these other narratives of those who were sympathetic with him, his relatives, uh, he himself, trying to, um, you know, take measures to uh, mitigate the symbolism of crucifixion. And and that I guess brings me to another point that makes these accounts so interesting is that um, our historical accounts rarely embrace the, uh, the Umayyad propagandistic perspective on the crucifixion of these people uh, without uh, uh, kind of taking it back a notch uh, that is we get both the sense in which uh, the the made attempt to uh, kind of damn these people to horrible fates through uh, crucifixion is is committed but also the way in which the memories of these people, are re-narrated, and their crucifixions are are re-narrated in ways that that mitigates and sometimes subvert the message that the Umayyads are trying to send themselves, these crucifixions. Uh, We get this in particular with the crucifixion of the other rebel that we mentioned, uh, Zayd ibn Ali, who, in essence, is descended directly from the Prophet himself, and he rebels in Kufa. And when he's crucified, probably around 720, and Kufa, uh, he's crucified naked. Most of the time, people were not crucified He was also a postmortem crucifixion. Uh, most people were not crucified naked as far as I can tell. A lot of times they, they speak of people being crucified with breeches on, so like short, short kind of long underwear, uh, so that their private parts were not exposed. Uh, but Zebed and Ali's uh, private parts were exposed when he was crucified and the narratives about him, because he was a descendant from the Prophet and because many revered him as an imam or kind of a, a sacred uh, leader in their tradition, uh, they describe ways in which God miraculously intervened to preserve his honor. So uh, one of the accounts says that um, his belly was, the skin of his belly was miraculously made to droop down over his private parts that could be seen. Other accounts uh, say uh, that God sent a spider to uh, weave a spider web over his private parts so that they wouldn't be seen by the public. Uh, There's this one that's very uh, involved dream that a woman reports having of having a vision of these heavenly ladies coming down from heaven and wrapping him in this uh, green silk cloth so that uh, his his nakedness is not exposed. Eventually it's it's revealed that one of these heavenly ladies is the daughter of the prophet and, uh, uh, Fatima herself from whom Zedid and Ali himself descended. So you, it's interesting how these, the narratives that record these events, um, both record the horror of the, of May crucifixion and its symbolism, but also in memorializing these events, uh, they They often take pains to uh, to undermine or um, turn on its head what the actual message of the of the Umayyads are right mm-hmm. what, what the actual message of the Umayyads are trying to communicate with the crucif- with these crucifixions
1: Now um, kind of an interesting twist that you uh, allude to in the kind of the opening part of your book um, is you talk about what happens when the Umayyads are ultimately conquered. Uh, by the Abbasid General Abdullah Ibn Ali. Can you tell us w- what happened here? <laughs> well, and this is something that really fascinated me because
0: uh, it even appears in a Jewish apocalypse of the period uh, called the Secrets of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yohai, in which uh, this the first Ishmaelite dynasty, or that is the first Arab dynasty, uh, appears in this apocalypse text as uh as foreordained to be crucified this is that this dynasty's sons will be crucified from the tree and this is using the imagery of uh, Deuteronomy 21 22 to 23 and um, really what what happens in the course of the violence of the abbasid revolution uh throughout 750 is that the abbasids very much see themselves as uh well, one they, they end up replacing the Umayyads in 750, and through the course of their revolution, uh, they see themselves as exacting revenge upon the Umayyads for all of the evils that they have committed, particularly against the members of the Prophet's household, his family, his clan, who are called the Hashemites or the uh, the descendants of Hashim, and Throughout this revolutionary violence, a, a lot of the imams that are caught alive are crucified. A lot of their supporters are crucified. And even Amayid calis, such as Hashem, that crucified Zayd and Ali, for example, their remains are literally digged up out of the ground and crucified, even though they're already in a state of uh, composition and sometimes even burned. Uh, so eventually the Umayyads Get their comeuppance uh, in history if if you if you're sympathetic with what (laughs) the
1: Abbas. Well, Sean, thank you for uh, walking us through this this very interesting narrative about life and death. (laughs) It's great to talk to you about killing machines. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Is there anything you want to tell us? You know, obviously, there's a lot in the book that we didn't get to. Is there anything that you'd like to say before we wrap things up?
0: Um, no, I, I guess the only thing I, w- I would like to say is that I, I think one of the interesting things about crucifixion, and even though it's, it does focus on what uh, is being practiced by the Emmaus, is that the, crucif- the practice of crucifixion continues to change after the Emmaus, even uh, well beyond the period at uh, which the book focuses on, and uh, eventually it comes to be mostly associated with, with hanging from a noose and things like that. Uh, but I guess the one thing I, I like to uh, put home is I think what makes the Muslim example or the the example of crucifixion in the Islamic in the early Islamic period example is a fascinating example is how you get so many different perspectives, right? You you have the the maids as practitioners of uh, of crucifixion, but also you have these many compelling stories of Muslims who themselves are the victims and martyrs that are that are crucified, and in the many ways in which uh, the narratives of these of the sufferings of of both uh, Muslims that are that suffer this or see their loved ones suffer this, and uh, the ideology behind uh, uh, the practice of crucifixion by those in power are, are captured in, in very rich and uh, and complex detail, and I and I and hope that uh,
1: that's something that people will uh, will appreciate yeah I think they will uh you you definitely make this very kind of grim topic uh captivating so at least at least for this reader um Sean, could you tell us also a little bit about what what kind of things you're gonna be working on in the future or things that you might have coming out um, so basically I have
0: uh one the main project come out um, coming out rather uh, the first is a new Arabic edition and English translation of a book called Kitab al-Nukhazi or The Expeditions by Muhammad ibn Rashid. In essence, he's a uh, mid-8th century biographer of the Prophet. It's it's one of the earliest biographies of the prophet to ever be written, and it's never been translated into European language before, so I'm very excited. That's that's coming out. It's going to be published in New York University Press's uh, Library of Arabic Literature. It should be coming out this month. Uh, I think next week it's due to come out. So I'm also very excited to that, see that's coming out. Um, right now I'm working on uh, two projects. Uh, one of them is related to the early biographical literature of Muhammad. I'm interested in trying to uncover uh, and find methods to see what the Umayyad contribution to the construction of the image of the prophet uh, was. Uh, All of our examples of prophetic biography uh, in the the biography of Muhammad date to the Abbasid period. Um, There is a lot of debate over whether or not there can be found earlier strata that date perhaps to the first Islamic century or not. And I'm interested in exploring uh, methods and examples in which you can find these earliest strata. And I have another book that I'm working on as well is the way in which uh, early Shiism in the, the Umayyad period uh, used the moral resources of apocalyptic thought and apocalyptic thinking in late antiquity in order to mobilize uh, uh, about the Abbasid
1: Revolution and, uh, and all that other jazz. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sean, it sounds like you're very busy. So we wish you luck, and we thank you again for for talking about this great book. Thanks a lot, Christian. That was my conversation with Sean Anthony about Crucifixion and Death as Spectacle, Umayyad Crucifixion in its Late Antique Context, published by the American Oriental Society in 2014. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.